Gyrish Nation, I'm back after leaving Mike on an island to cover one of the worst losses in recent memory for Notre Dame football. I'm back to get us in the win column. So it was the first win in the Freeman era, finally. Still a close call, though. Some dramatic moments at the end, particularly that Hail Mary pass that bobbled around for what it seemed like forever. Some other notable moments. Tommy Reese lost his cool, which has been essentially the meme of this football weekend, telling Drew Pine that he needs to do his effing job. Uh, frustrating ma- moment in the game, but I, d- I did find that particular video pretty funny. Now, I think another thing that we want to mention here, and this is something that we would always mention last season when Brian Kelly was the coach, and it still holds true. And you see it all the time in college football when teams that should win certain games a lot of times have disappointing performances and lose to teams that you would generally expect wouldn't be able to hang with them. And and that's that winning is really hard. Kelly wasn't making excuses. I think that's a point that we're seeing reinforced so far this season. And hopefully Freeman, he's able to figure out all these issues out that we're seeing so far, and we kind of get back to that routine that we had in the past five or six years where we were just generally winning 10-plus games a year. But that's no easy thing to do, and, and and we're seeing that. So, again, that's just the point that we want to mention again just because it is it is so critical, and you can't take these – you can't take a program success at the level that we've had for granted. It's very challenging with a group of college kids week in, week out to just do what you're supposed to do. For sure. In fact, if any of our listeners are looking for a newsletter or a blog to compliment listening to Guyers talk their podcast, Notre Dame Football Medium, highly recommend the Rakes Report by Chris Wilson. You can Google it, subscribe, get that automatically sent to your email. And he has an entire section every single weekend dedicated to winning is hard, where he describes all of the games in college football where a powerhouse program either lost or barely won in a, in a game they should have won easily. And it gets to the point that, especially in a year like this, um, every win is a gift. Every win is a source of joy. Like, you've got to enjoy college football Saturday, especially when your team gets a W. So even if it's ugly, even if it's a seven-point win at home against the Cow Bears that you think you should beat handedly, um, you got to enjoy them. As a reminder for our fans, we're on um, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out, subscribe, download. Please share with your friends, leave a review. All that good stuff. And for today's show, we've got the Cal Bear game recap, the first win of the Marcus Freeman era. We are going to preview next week's UNC game. And then after taking a week to reflect, Mike and I are uh, ready to share our thoughts on sort of initial assessment of Marcus Freeman, particularly after, let's be honest, a disappointing one and two start. I'm really assessing Freeman and in addition to that, the offensive coordinator, Tom Reese. I'm proud of those guys, and you know what? It, it is hard to win football games. It's hard, and so I'm so proud of that group of guys to find a way to finish. Um, you know what? Tonight's going to be about celebrating this victory. All right, Mike, 24-17, another close game. This time Notre Dame comes out on top. Should we be more concerned about the fact that Notre Dame played the Cal Bears to a seven-point game, or should we be ecstatic and pumped and, and seeing things moving in the right direction? So first off, make no mistake, the Cal Bears are a below-average Power 5 team, a below-average FBS team. So this was not a good team that we were facing. So I think my my takeaway here, Brett, and I think I mentioned this to you before, is that this game kind of confirmed that 
we're not a good team. Maybe we can, maybe by the end of the year we can develop into one, but we are definitely not a good team now. The Marshall game was not a total anomaly. However, I do think just winning, getting a win, just winning this game, kind of getting rid of those thoughts that'll pop into the back of your mind. Maybe this team is snake bitten. Maybe this team will just find ways to lose. I think that that hopefully can calm some nerves a little bit and it's something to build from. So a bit, I guess like if you're taking my, uh, my two key themes here together, it's a bit of a mixed bag. We're not a good team, but this is something that maybe we can build from and get people to calm down a little bit. Now, diving into the data a little bit more here, we were actually dominant in this game. The problem is, is that our offense has generally been very ineffective, so we're not going to beat teams by three, four touchdowns. We're going to be relying on our defense a little bit more. Our, our night, our, so our, our post-game win expectancy was 99%, very high, which shows if you replay this game a bunch of times, the vast, vast majority of the time, we're gonna we're gonna win it. Um, looking at our success rate on offense, on offense, ours was forty three percent, which is a pretty solid mark. Uh, and you compare that to Cal thirty percent, so we kept their success rate really low. Our off- offense generally kept on schedule. Moving to our havoc, the havoc that we generated on defense was finally at the level that we were expecting going into the season. We were expecting our defensive line would be able to get to the quarterback a lot, generate a lot of pressure. We finally saw that this game. And we had a havoc rate of 16%, which is a very, a very good havoc rate. On the other hand, uh, the, the havoc that we allowed to our offense was only 9%. So we saw, we generally saw a pretty, uh, we, we did a pretty good job of, of, of keeping Cal from, their defense from, from disrupting, um, our offense, getting sacks. We did have a turnover, that fumble, but generally we didn't put ourselves in a whole lot of situations where we would get tackled for losses, sacks, or being just generally in situations that would tend to drive turnovers. Yeah, and and you're hitting on the two big things. We were able to stay generally on schedule, especially after the first quarter where where we had all those three knots. After that, we were able to pretty effectively move the ball, and Cal wasn't. And we were generally able to disrupt their offense and they weren't able to disrupt ours. And it stayed close because frankly, we just didn't take advantage, right? We gave them a short field on a fumble. We had multiple false start penalties that, you know, made third and ones into third and six and third and three into third and eight. Um, and, and a couple of really critical drops are just easy bad throws early on in the game. And if you remove those, this gets you know, a much more dominant game pretty quickly. However, despite how dominant we were statistically, this also could have went the other way, right? Notre Dame scores a touchdown after we miss a field goal and the refs have a very just blatant missed call on offsides. And on another scoring drive, uh, they stop us on third down and, and just have a really boneheaded targeting penalty that, that keeps our drive alive. So, there were a couple of instances where I felt like we really got breaks. There were also a couple of instances where we really could have blown this game open and, and didn't, and that's largely on our offense. But our defense was stifling and dominant in, in this game. Definitely. And our, our defense has not generated any turnovers yet this year. We were very close at the end of the game. I think one aspect is we've generally been falling on the, on the wrong side of that in terms of turnover margin. And a lot of times when you see games that are a little bit closer than what they should be, that's what it is. It's a lot of these turnovers. We're start, Like I said, we're finally starting to see the havoc that generates turnovers. That's really, when you look at that, that's really what tells you what a team's potential is to actually generate turnovers, particularly how often you're pressuring the QB and how often you're actually getting sacks. So hopefully moving forward, we actually start to look a little bit better in that area. 
because as we mentioned in this game, 99% win expectancy. It really didn't feel like that, but part of that was just because there were, for example, the turnover that Cal got. That was a very fluky play. Now moving into that havoc a little bit more, Brad. We mentioned it was uh, it was 16%. So where was that? We mentioned the defensive line, but I guess where in particular was that havoc coming from? Yeah, entirely Isaiah Foskey and Jason Adamalola. Um, Foskey had eight pressures in this game. Um, Adamalola had five. They they really led the defense, um, br- bringing the pressure, coming up with six um, sacks in total. So um, I thought that's really what stood out to me was Adamalola, Foskey, sorry, I said Jason, Justin Adamalola, um, easy to get the brothers confused, was was really the story of this game that set the tone for everything else that, that was happening in the defense. And so um, turning it back to you, Mike, outside of the defensive line, um, how, how did you see the secondary grading out? There, there, there were certainly some mixed stats on this one. Um, and, and, and curious how, how you viewed the secondary in this game. My impression of the secondary was that they performed well. There are some weird pro football focused grades that came out of this, but I think if you look at the headline stats, Cal averaged five yards per attempt, 43% completion percentage. That's really good. If, if you're able to do that against the opposing team's offense, they're going to be really struggling. It essentially tells you that they really struggled to move the ball through the air. However, there were a few subpar grades for the secondary. Not for everyone. Bracey, Lewis, and Joseph, they were all around seven. So that's three three of our key guys in the secondary, and they performed pretty well. Cam Hart and DJ Brown, though, they were much lower at 61. Cam Hart was targeted six times, gave up three passes for 36 yards. And DJ Brown, targeted twice, gave up two passes for 11 yards. We're not saying that that's going to be an 80 grade where they're considered elite based on that one game but overall i would say that's pretty locked pretty locked down as a whole and these grades for hart and brown seem perhaps a little uh a little tough it seems like they're being graded a little bit uh in a a difficult manner now moving to another unit that at least me personally i didn't think that they had their uh a particularly great game that's the linebackers brett you want to you want to talk about what what's going on with that unit and how they looked why they looked that way and just generally what your takeaways are from this game? Yeah, honestly, I don't have a great assessment for it. I I will say, you know, the defensive line and, and the secondary, by the way, I, I agree with you on the secondary. I'm still struggling on some of these pro football focus grades, but across the board, super solid. And, and then you get to linebacker, and they just looked a little lost out there yesterday, um, you know, the one maybe saving grace is that they generally tackled pretty well. Like we weren't seeing a lot of missed tackles out there, but Maris Luafau and Jack Kaiser both had grades of 58 um, and weren't really disruptive. They weren't getting home on the quarterback. They weren't getting tackles for loss, um, you know, in coverage. Um Interestingly, they weren't targeted a ton, but when they were, um, I guess that they weren't targeted a ton. So it's not that I saw them playing a bad game. It's just they weren't making an impact. They were just all very, very quiet. And linebackers shouldn't be quiet. Linebackers should be the ones making tackles, getting in the backfield in the run game, providing passing support. Like they're the middle of the defense. So they got to be everywhere. 
and they just all had really quiet games. Now, I want to be clear, the defense as a whole played a really great job. So I don't know if there was a scheme element involved or not. Um, J.D. Bertrand obviously had a very boneheaded targeting play late in the game that kind of extended, the, you know, really gave Cal life, um, if, if you will, in that targeting penalty. Um, and so stuff to clean up at linebacker. I think that's probably the worst game we've seen from Jack Kaiser and Maris Lufau. And certainly the worst pro football focus grade. Now, I don't know if I necessarily saw a bunch of blatant bad plays from them, but they weren't the difference makers we saw in the first two games where I really felt like they were a huge part of, you know, carrying the weight for the defense when the defensive line maybe wasn't bringing their best. And here it felt like the defensive line really stepped up their performance, but the linebackers weren't adding to that. So I'm not sure if that was something Cal schemed against or something we did that, you know, put our defensive line in a different position at the expense of our linebackers. But in general, Kaiser Leofoud, not the kind of disruptive playmakers we've, we've seen from them earlier in the season. Definitely. I, th- I think overall, again, I, Cal's offensive line, that's one of their weaker units. We talked about this last week. So you need to take the defensive line's performance with a little bit of a grain of salt, but this is, this is the first time we've actually seen them perform like this. Maybe it's against a worse opponent, but just seeing this at all is encouraging for me. So hopefully it's something that they can kind of continue to to do going forward. Um, it's really, again, what we were kind of expecting them to do regularly going into the season. Linebackers, like you said, Brett, not their best day in the office. It wasn't horrible. They didn't play horribly. They just were very, it was a very forgettable performance. And so maybe that's an area of upside. If you can kind of get the, the defensive line and linebackers just totally clicking one game, I think then you have something really special in the front seven. And then, as we talked about, grades aside for the secondary, I generally think they've been performing pretty well. They're, they've been doing much better, I think, than we were. Maybe not much better, but I think they've, they've been a pleasant surprise, I think, so far this season. They've generally been holding their own. I think I saw a stat where their quarterback had a 30% completion percentage, or like 30, 35% in the second half. Like that's, that's locking it down, right? So, um, feeling, feeling pretty good there. Switching to the other side of the ball, Mike, I think we're about, 15 minutes into this show, and we've yet to mention Drew Pine making his first career start as Notre Dame's QB1. Um, how do you think he did? What, what's your assessment of Pine? So you can't get around the first half. The first half was basically a disaster, but this is this was his first start. That's It's not totally unusual for someone who's making their first start at, at a point in time, especially right now, where the program was kind of had our hair on fire a little bit. People were starting to panic a little bit. Not the best time to come in as a first-time starter. So he really did not do well in the first half. He fumbled. He had some pretty bad missed throws, some bad reads. But he did settle in. And actually, I think, I, I, I don't know what the, the inflection point was. I'd have to go back and watch the game. But maybe when Reese screamed at him, uh, notably on that video, maybe that kind of lit a fire under him and uh, and helped him do a little bit better. But he he finished much better. I, I wouldn't, by no means did he have a banner performance. But uh, he finished, I think, 9 for 11. We saw something like that. He wasn't he wasn't completing particularly difficult throws, but he was doing what he was supposed to do basically, and he wasn't turning the ball over. And um, I think it's something. I think honestly, that's kind of like what we just need him to do. We need him to just just not set us back, not hurt us, and then maybe as we progress throughout the season, maybe we can kind of build on it. But he's not someone who has a cannon arm. We're not going to be. We also don't even have the receivers for that. He's not someone who's going to be able to slice and dice a defense on his own. We really just need him to just execute the simple plays that we're calling and not turn the ball over. 
Yeah, so it's it's interesting. His pro football focus grade was okay at best. Um, pulling it back up here. He had a pro football focus grade of 57. Um, 60s is kind of mediocre. 70s is solid to good. So in the 50s is, is frankly just not good. Um, and my assessment of it was, especially at the start of the game, so Reese goes off on him after the third straight three and out. The first two three, and by the way, on that play, right? So he's got Mike Mayer wide open. He's making a, uh, he could have underhanded it to Mike Mayer. Um, he could have pointed to Mike Mayer to turn and block for him. And, and we would have gotten the first down and, and he basically ducked through it into the ground. So terrible play. Reese goes off on him. Meme worthy. I get it. But the drives before that, we had a third and one and picked it up on a QB sneak. And our senior wide receiver, Braden Lindsay has a false start. Why is a wide receiver even moving on a QB sneak? Like, I have no idea why. Um, on another play, Lorenzo Styles Jr. wasn't a great ball. It was a little low, but, but Styles drops a pretty catchable pass. Um, Styles actually had two drops on the day. So one of the stats that I really like to look at, um, is adjusted completion percent, which is basically your completion percent plus drops. He had a 83% completion percentage. Now we weren't asking him to throw the ball deep. We weren't asking him to thread needles. We, we weren't asking him to do anything heroic, but if you, complete or throw on target 83% of the time, you're going to have a really good college football career. Um, the biggest concern for me is if he can do more than that. So the one time we sort of let him take a shot was to a wide open Mike Mayer down the seam route. I mean, just wide open and he completely missed it. Now, first time starting QB, does he have nerves? Um, maybe sure. Like I can excuse all that. So I think what I walked away from was, didn't grade up particularly well in this game, but I got a lot of confidence that we can expect him to be a really solid game manager versus what I was worried about before was had a lot of turnover history, looked really inconsistent before here. Once he settled in, if, if you're, you know, completing 84% of your pass on adjusted basis, or I think even excluding that it was still 74%. Um, he's moving the chains for us. He's keeping us on schedule. He's staying within the offense. Overall, I thought positive marks for Drew Pine. Yeah, agree. I think game manager is a reasonable expectation. And I think the first half made us nervous that we could have a nightmare scenario where we just have someone who's a deer in the headlights, just can't even complete the simple throws. As the game went on, I was encouraged that at a minimum, like, I was like, okay, it seems like maybe the floor will be a little bit higher. He's not going to win games on his own, but hopefully he can, as you said, just keep the chains moving. Now, I'm going to move on to the the run game a bit here because that was uh, that's another important aspect and that's that's an area where we have not performed well thus far this year. Cal, we flagged this in our last episode when we were doing the preview of that game. Their uh, their defensive line probably the weakest unit on the whole team, particularly their ability to to defend the run. That was a, a really weak area. So looking at this game, you got to keep that. You got to again, you got to take all this uh, data that we're talking about. You got to take it with the caveat that we were playing a particularly weak defensive line especially when it comes to the run. But we did get line yards at 3.4. Cal, overall, their defense actually is very good. It's just that particular aspect of the defensive line is where they're a little bit weaker. So by no means is this a weak defense. It's just that specific aspect is a little bit weaker. And then looking at the offensive line grades, they were actually, this is the first game where we, we've had this. We've The offensive line grades were awesome for, for Alt, Patterson, and Corral. 
Lug was mediocre, and then Blake Fisher was actually very bad. I think he was – I forgot exactly what it was, Brett. I think it was somewhere in the 50s, but essentially below a replacement level, essentially. Just a, a very bad outing for Fisher. Yeah, but Blake Fisher was right at 50. Um, Joe Alt, by the way, 89. I believe that's one of the highest individual grades we've, we've had by an offensive player. So awesome game for him. Yeah. And like we said, Cal's defensive line – not it'll be one of the worst defensive lines we face all year. But if you want to see the offensive line start to improve, you have to start somewhere. And certainly the offensive line, if we weren't doing anything like this against Marshall. We were struggling really badly last week against Marshall. Play a weak defensive line this year, at least, or this week, at least we finally show some of these, you know, we finally show some pulse. We finally show some signs that maybe the defense or the offensive line will be able to kind of pull it together. So I think I think I was encouraged there. And, and, and we say Cal, you know, we said Cal coming into the season that we, Mike and Brett, thought Cal would have a bad defensive line based on how they did last year and their returning production this year. But this is the 17th best defense according to SB yeah. Plus. Yeah. So, you know, don't count out Cal's defense yet. But but I agree with you. Like this isn't Clemson. This isn't Ohio State's defense. But sure felt like a step in the right direction. Yep. And then, Brett, I don't know if you want to touch on this point. This is something we talked about a lot. But while the offensive line looked better this game, particularly with the run blocking, um, I wouldn't say that our running backs necessarily were taking advantage. They, they played okay, but I wouldn't say they were necessarily taking advantage of the space that they were getting as much as you would expect when we were re-watching some of these plays, when we were actually diving into the data. I, yeah, I, I agree. So if you go back to our shows last year, we had a deep dive segment on the zone block scheme that the Notre Dame runs. And, and it's all about, um, patience from a running back because what the offensive line is trying to do is establish double teams and then move off of that double team and quickly find another person to block. And until that second block occurs, and it's kind of got to be bang, bang, right? Like it's not like you're waiting five seconds, but it's going to take one or two seconds to develop. Until that second block is initiated, you're not going to know what the right hole is. And there's a lot of times where it feels like Estime and Tyree are just diving so fast into the line of scrimmage that they're not letting that develop. So there was actually one play that I went back and just really zeroed in on where Josh Lug made a ridiculously great block and then started running up and was like four yards downfield and had a wide open hole and he actually had to like backpedal to come back to like help. He had to like turn around and come back to help because I think it was SMA just completely went the other way. Like he just completely went the other way because he didn't wait to see Lug move upfield and then just follow behind Josh Lug. And so that's just something that, you know, Tom Reese, we've got a new running back coach. Lance Taylor's gone. Like we've really got to coach up. If we're getting linemen five yards down the field and we're not just walking behind them, we're leaving yards on the table. We're, we're just we're just leaving successful plays on the table. And so I thought this was a really positive step forward for the offensive line. Um, I thought this game showed some really positive momentum for Drew Pine to at least settle in. Um, I'll maybe pause on – we had some other questions, topics we, we were talking about covering in the game recap. We've got another section at the end on Tom Reese kind of play calling and scheme and player usage. So we're going to pull in some of this Cal game in, into that later discussion. But suffice to say, I think we're starting to see some flavor of where, 
you know, this Notre Dame offense was not dynamic. We were not explosive. We didn't go and put up 40 points against Cal, but started to see what this offense can do that will work. Um, and a lot of that's got to start with, we, we might not have a dominant offensive line. My, my prediction that we'd win the Joe Moore award is, is almost certainly out the door at this point. So my preseason hot take, my one hot take is, um, very, very cold right now. Um, but it does feel like this offensive line is stabilizing to the point where it's going to set up our, our offense to, you know, hopefully find some footing going forward. Yep. And I think the one last point I'll make before we, close this recap is that we talked about the run blocking some improvement there and then also we hinted at this at the beginning of this segment the havoc rate was very low so and this matches up with with all the data that we've seen too generally the offensive line did a did a good job of uh of pass protection so again just uh, overall like a strong performance from them guys it was a tough week for all of us from me on down that we had to really look at ourselves and in really say, okay, what do we have to do to enhance? Sometimes you don't want to hear, you really don't want to know where the negative aspects of what you're doing are. But in order, in order for us to get better, you had to take a deep dive into yourself first. Me as the head coach, our position coaches, onto our players, and, and really take accountability for our performance and, and attack it in practice. All right, diving into the upcoming matchup against North Carolina the Irish are back on the road for a second road game of the season as we head to Chapel Hill to take on the undefeated 3-0 Tar Heels. Uh, Mike, what have we learned about this UNC team so far in their first three games of the year? So it's it's tricky because they're one of those teams that they just they just seem very inconsistent at times. So they played Florida A&M. Florida A&M is terrible. But even them, they were competitive for a half, ultimately scoring 24 points. App State... Georgia State, they both gave UNC everything they had. App State scored 40 points on UNC in the fourth quarter. So clearly they have some issues there on the defensive side of the ball. So it's interesting when you look at the grades. They're grading out reasonably well, but they are still kind of squeaking by against okay, not great competition. So I think that's kind of my headline right there is that They've allowed some of these teams who are, are clearly a level below them to hang hang around a little bit more than, than you would expect. And some of their grades suggest that they are executing certain aspects pretty well. They have some talent on their team. Their talent composite is, 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 is number 16, Notre Dame's 10th. So uh, as far as talent differential, this is the most talented team that we will have faced. Well, other than Ohio State. Other than Ohio State, this will be the uh, most talented team that we'll have faced all year. So there's talent on the roster, but... Um, so far, it's been a, a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the fact that they barely squeaked by Georgia State, um, beat them by one score, barely squeaked by App State. Um, both those are two really good teams, by the way, in the Sun Belt, and, and Notre Dame knows um, all about the Sun Belt after losing to Marshall. Um, and so, and arguably Georgia State, um, even – Georgia State and App State should finish better than Marshall in the Sun Belt this year. At least that's expected. So, you know, solid football programs, definitely. But both were a struggle. And I think, look, my, my wife is from North Carolina. A bunch of um, my in-laws on, on that extended side of the family have gone to Chapel Hill. And I'd say the general pulse around that program is just kind of nervous. Like, look, Mac Brown's down the recruiting. He's got all the offensive firepower and all the flash and, you know, Drake may be like, 
is this just going to be another version of Sam Howell? Or can this team like actually elevate this program now that the recruiting's there and they've been generally winning? Or is it going to be like the last few years where it all looks great until it's not and then the wheels fall off? So I think UNC fans are really, really looking forward to this game, but I think there's some nervous anticipation just given, you know, they've really squeaked by up until this point in, in the year. And I mentioned it, Drake May. So m- moving to the next storyline here of this preview, Drake May, he's a Charlotte kid, went to Myers Park High School. Um, older brother Luke May was a basketball star at UNC, believe won a national championship there. Um, and so he's a redshirt freshman, won the starting job. He's the heir to Sam Powell, who set every single passing record in, in Carolina history. And the real question is, is this guy legit? So far, yes. Uh, pro football focus grade of 89. Um, he's setting some really, really high marks in, in a lot of areas. Um, ninth in adjusted completion percentage. He's tied for first in touchdowns with CJ Stroud, who, who Notre Dame's played this year. And so, Mike, I think the real question is, Drake May looks as advertised. Can Notre Dame do what they did against CJ Stroud? Or do you see something in this UNC offense where sort of strength on strength, the explosive UNC offense versus the really so far bend, not break, but do a really good job of keeping the points down Notre Dame defense? Which one wins out here? Is, is UNC going to go put up 40 points or is ND going to, you know, win the day on the defensive side of the ball? It's a tough question. As you said, it's strength on strength. UNC's offense may has been playing lights out. They don't, I wouldn't say that they necessarily have an elite running back. Marion Hampton, he grades out okay. Big runner. Not exactly dynamic. And then at the receiver position, it's really kind of a, I don't know if by committee is the right way of putting it because that almost suggests that you're not getting good production and everyone's just doing whatever they can. But overall, it's been a group effort replacing Josh Downs. And uh, overall, I think they've done a pretty good job. Looking at the SP+, it confirms that UNC is almost an elite offense. They're ranked number 11. That's really high. Maybe not quite what you'd consider elite. That's probably more top five. And as as we said, this is strength on strength. Our defense is ranked number 18. So maybe a little bit lower than what UNC's is. But Really, the question is, is which unit is going to prevail? And that, and that's a tough question to, I think it's a tough question to answer. I think you also need to dive into what each team does particularly well. So we already know what the strengths of our defense are. We're, thus far, we've been really good at preventing explosiveness. We give up, we will give up some success rate, but so far, really, our ability to limit the big play has been, been the hallmark of this defense. We finally showed some havoc rate in this game against Cal. So if that becomes another ingredient going forward for our defense, I think we're looking at a really special unit. This potentially could be, we're saying top 10, top five is probably a bit of a stretch, but we're looking at a defense that should be really good. For UNC on offense, what they really like to do, they generate, again, they're an effective offense. So they generate a pretty high success rate. Well, not pretty high. It's it's actually very high, 50.7%. So that's, that's one of the better success rates in the country. And then they're also extremely explosive. Their explosiveness is 1.47. Brett and I mentioned the range is you typically see explosiveness between one and 1.3. If you're 1.3, that's really good. 1.47 is exceptional. So they're really picking up a, a lot of really big chunky plays. They have a high success rate. So they're both moving the ball regularly and then also having a lot of just long runs, long passes. And then also from a havoc standpoint, they're not 
they're not allowing that much havoc. They're only allowing 12% of havoc. So there aren't teams aren't thus far haven't been able to sack the QB a bunch, get to the quarterback a lot, get interceptions, fumbles, and they haven't really been able to get them off cue. So this is a needless to say they pretty they, they do pretty well in almost all aspects. So I think that I think that if Notre Dame, I think if our defense, if our defensive line shows what we saw against Cal and they bring it against North Carolina, the one unit on in, on their team that's a little bit weaker is their offensive line. If we can generate, if we can actually generate havoc from that position, the secondary continues to perform how they are, and then the linebackers don't have an average performance like they did against Cal, and they pl- play more like what we saw in the first couple games. I think I think we actually could potentially slow them down. They have not played a defense like ours yet, and while they have weapons, while while their QB's done really well, I think. I think if we're able to bring everything together, I think we can slow them down on that side of the ball. Again, I also think they're, I think they're good enough to where they're going to put up some points no matter what, but I think our defense has the ability to, to give them some challenges, to throw them off cue a little bit. Maybe we can, maybe there'll be a couple quarters where they're really struggling to move the ball. For a strength on strength matchup, one of the things that I actually like about this matchup that I don't think I would have said over the summer is the fact that they really spread the ball out. So they, they've been successful so far this year because they've got eight pass catchers, um, looks like four wide receivers, a running back, and two tight ends that have all caught multiple catches in the first three games. Um, and so what that leads to is if Drake may spread it out to, you know, seven different guys in the game, you, you need to be really balanced on, on defense. And going into the year, I said, like, I feel really good about Cam Hart. I don't know how great I feel about maybe the rest of the secondary or, you know, feel good about Jack Heiser. Not sure. Like, we don't know what Maris Lufau looks like in coverage yet. Um, I feel a lot better that Jaden Mickey and Benjamin Morrison have been getting real reps. They're starting to look better. Tariq Bracey has been a revelation. Um, Brandon Joseph has looked as good as advertised. Clarence Lewis has had a really solid start to the year. Um, DJ Brown, I'm, I'm always really high on. And so I'm pretty confident that we have enough pieces on our defense to match up with them throwing a bunch of different personnel at us, them getting, you know, five, six, seven, eight different guys involved in the passing game. I think we've got enough depth, maybe not even all the way to the two deep, but just like a, there's no real weak link in that back seven to me that really stands out to me. It's like this person's going to go and get picked on because they have five different guys that can beat us. And so I think that balance on our defense um, really helps offset what they bring to the table. And then they just haven't seen athletes like us yet. Like th- this will be the first time Drake May goes up against the power five football team. This is the first time Drake May is going to go up against the, a, you know, defense with more four stars than not going against him. And so I think that gives us a pretty big advantage. They're like, he hasn't played Clemson yet. He hasn't played Miami yet. Um, I think that that inexperience, like this is still his fourth career start. Uh, this is the first top 25 defense that I think he's seen. Um, I think those things work in our advantage. So maybe I'm that look, we're the glass half full podcast. Um, but I'm sneaky optimistic that our defense is going to slow them down. I'm not saying we hold them to 10 points, but like, I don't think they get to 30. 
like I, I think they're going to be in the low twenties at, at best. And I think they're going to have to really fight to break that 20 barrier. And our defense is going to surprise a lot of people on Saturday. Agree. I, I think we have, I think if we show up, I think we have the ability to slow them down. And I think keeping them less than 30 seems realistic. Now moving to the other side, and this is more of a weakness on weakness scenario. What do you think? Um, so do you think Andy's offense, do you think we can, you know, we'll see more of what we saw later in the Cal game? Do you think we can kind of build on that? Uh, North Carolina is certainly not a good defense by any means. Actually, probably the, the worst defense we'll have faced thus far. So how do you, how, how do you think that matchup shaking up? Our offense is no juggernaut unit. Third defense is weak. Who do you think is going to be able to win that battle? So it's pretty interesting that SP Plus still has Notre Dame's offense as the 33rd best. Um, you know, using the eye test, I think we can all agree that like Notre Dame's not some juggernaut offense putting up 30, 40 points a game. But when you look at it, we've played Ohio State's defense that's currently 16th, according to SP Plus, Marshall that's 57th. So not great, but above average out of 130 some teams. And then Cal is actually 17th in SP Plus right now. So uh, on the defensive side of the ball. North Carolina is all the way down at 83rd. Um, so North Carolina's defense has gotten gouged. We had mentioned it earlier. They gave up 40 points to App State in the fourth quarter alone. Um, they really let Georgia State, um, you know, kind of run all over them in, in a tight 35-28 ball game. And so I think this is a great opportunity for Notre Dame's offense to – you know, finally probably have the most favorable matchup they've, they've had all year. Um, North Carolina is 122nd in the country in havoc, uh, generated and 102nd in success rate, um, allowed. So it's, it's a favorable matchup for Drew Pine. I think this is more about does Notre Dame execute and does Tommy Reese Go back, and we're going to get this in a little bit, but go back and actually see what's working because there are a lot of things working right now and there are a lot of things not working and we keep trying to do both. So if, if we can scheme a game plan that just sticks to our strengths, this should be as favorable as a matchup as we've had this year. So again, that, that gets me cautiously optimistic. Um, but maybe more skeptical than our defense just because we haven't seen our offense do it yet. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the best matchup thus far that our offense will have faced. I think the opportunity is here for us to generate enough points to win the game. Now, focusing on specific aspects of UNC's defense, in particular, their coverage is really bad. So if I'm just looking at where they're grading, where they've graded out thus far this year, they're ranked 104th per pro football focus grade. So this is a unit that's just been, been getting torched, essentially, in every game that they've been in. We've seen that. Appalachia State, they put up, as we mentioned, 40 points in the fourth quarter. That you can't have, a good unit would never allow anything like that to ever happen. They do, and not every single aspect of this defense is, is completely flawed. They actually generate a pretty good pass rush, but that's pretty much it. They're not particularly strong in run defense. The run defense ranks 73rd from a pro, pro football focus grade standpoint, and their tackling is, is fine. But... Overall, I would say their defense is kind of the opposite of what their their offense is. So whereas their offense is uh, has high explosiveness, has a high success rate, and also uh, doesn't allow much havoc, basically the defense falls on the opposite end of that in terms of what you would want your defense to do. So they allow a lot of explosiveness. They don't generate much havoc. They 
give up a, a pretty high success rate too. So just across the board, this defense struggles in most aspects with the exception of the pass rush. So I, I'm with you on it. I think our, I think our offense, I think if we play our cards right, and thus far this season, that's been a pretty big if, I think we should be able to get enough points. Look, we're, we don't have an explosive offense. We're not putting up 50 points, but I think this could be a game where we potentially get more than 30 points. And I think that may say more, I think that says more about UNC's defense than it does about our offense. But I'll, if we get over more than 30 points, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly take it. And I would take that as a positive sign. It's like, at least you can do this against a bad defense. Yeah. And just go into a couple specific players for, for Carolina's defense. Um, their linebacker Eccles and Gray, um, probably two of their solid, you know, best grading starters in, in the seventies and their defensive end, uh, Rucker. He's probably their best defensive player. He's, he's been pretty disruptive so far with, with three sacks. And then, so, so front seven, like they hang in there, um, especially at, at the pass rush. They just haven't been very good in, in run defense. And then in the secondary, um, so they run a base nickel package. So at any time they've typically got five guys in the secondary out there. Um, Storm Duck, one of their corners has given up four touchdowns already this year at a 76% completion, um, rate for the opposing QB when he's the primary target. Um, or when he's the primary defender and, and is targeted. And then they're starting safety Kelly, when he's targeted, he's giving up a whopping 24 yards per catch, um, when, when he's targeted. So definitely some weak links back there. Um, I know wide receiver is not our strongest group, but a, a pretty big opportunity for Lorenzo Styles and, and Braden, Braden Lindsay and Jaden Thomas in this game. Definitely. I think one other point I'm going to mention, I was referencing pro football focus grades. Again, these are not opponent adjusted and UNC has not played a particularly difficult schedule. So some of these grades, which are pretty bad, they're not going up against elite competition. So I think that further hammers home how, how challenging it has been for them on that side of the ball. Now, moving a little bit more into big picture, Brett, if you, if you're looking at this game in terms of expectations, where do you think I guess where where do you think our uh, where we land overall in this game? What's your prediction? <clears throat> so as always, got to start with um, the the background stats on this one. The early lines that I saw, although they've been moving around, is that UNC is about a one point favorite. ESPN says Notre Dame has a fifty four percent chance to win this game, and the SP plus efficiency rating implies that Notre Dame should be about a three to five point favorite. So um, SP plus likes Notre Dame in this, um, ESPN's win predictor likes Notre Dame in this more so than Vegas does. And I'm, I'm going to lean into that. Um, the over under is 60. I really don't see Notre Dame putting up 35, 40 points. And so, you know, for me to think that we win this game, um, it's not that Notre Dame's offense goes off. It's that Notre Dame's defense wins that strength on strength matchup. So I've got this game kind of waffling back and forth on it. I'm going to go with 28-21. Um, Notre Dame comes away with a victory um, on the road. It's a bit of a dogfight slugfest. Don't expect either team, you know, blowing each other out in this game. I think it'll be a really great college football game, um, a really great matchup. Actually, as I'm looking, it looks like Notre Dame's actually now a one-point favorite. So the, the line's moving around a little bit. But I'll go with Notre Dame twenty eight twenty one. Yeah, I mean, I think takeaways. It's a, it's a, the game is a toss up essentially. 
I'm I'm pretty similar to you on where Notre Dame is going to land on offense. So I'm picking a score of 30 to 27 Notre Dame winning. I think we're going to generate enough points. I think we're going to be able to slow down UNC, but I think they're still going to be able to put up some points. But I, it was kind of what I was hitting at earlier. I think I think our offense is going to be able to do enough, and our defense is going to be able to slow them down enough for us to to generate a narrow win uh, on the road. Awesome. With that, let's dive into our last segment on assessing Marcus Freeman after the one and two start along with his offensive coordinator, Tommy Reese. Coach Reese is a great coach and, and you know, he's just as frustrated as, as everybody else in terms of the outcome. And um, I got his back, like I told him. And, and yeah, I wanted to run the ball. I felt like we were moving the ball and let's continue to run it. But you can't run the ball the whole game. I was proud of him saying, okay, you know what, let's go. Let's get some runs. Let's get the, the, the momentum going. And then he kind of took over. He made the check. Um, that touchdown, Audrey, I'm sitting there screaming, like, get the call, go, 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 go. And he's like, coach, I got to check. Bam, made the check, scores a touchdown. I'm like, that's why I need to shut up and let you do your job. And so I'm proud of him and that whole offensive staff. All right. Assessing Marcus Freeman and Tom Reese. So to, to frame this, um, Mike and I actually talked last week if we should delay posting the show until I would have been able to record it so we could do this a week ago. And we decided cooler heads always prevail when trying to evaluate bad news. We, we wanted to take a week to think about it, not overreact to one game. Um, and, and two things stood out to us as we listened to other people um, evaluate and throw out a lot of hot takes. One, it was a reminder of why we do this podcast. So we, we say it a lot. We're a glass half full data analytics focused podcast. And the origins of this actually all started following the 2019 Michigan game. Notre Dame got blown out in the rain game. Um, horrible game for Brian Kelly in the program. And Ian Book was maybe the worst game of his collegiate career. And following that, Ian Book got a bunch of just ridiculous threats on social media and Twitter and, and, and you name it, like fans just got ugly. And we were sitting there thinking, this is a 20 year old kid who's out there trying his best in a horrible rainstorm and nothing is working for this program. And all of his alleged fans, not all, but a, a portion of his alleged fans are just attacking him um, on, on social media. And, and we saw that as an opportunity of let's, let's get into this podcast business that, talk positively about something we like. And this week, um, we saw a lot of that negativity come out, um, including from the media. And so we don't like to single out people. We're sure he's a great guy. And, and we're just saying this to, to emphasize a point. But Frankie V, who is the co-host of the UHND podcast, the UHND podcast is one of the um, Biggest kind of fan podcasts in, in the Notre Dame football universe. He's got 16,000 followers on Twitter. Like, big deal. One of the bigger podcasts out there for Notre Dame football. He had an entire rant on the show about how lazy the entire roster was. And just how the players, the individual players were lazy. And he specifically called out Isaiah Foskey. I sat there thinking, Isaiah Foskey could have went to the NFL and be making millions of dollars right now. And instead he came back to Notre Dame to get a degree and finish what he started. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm really upset about losing this Marshall game. But not once did I think any of these players look like they aren't trying or look like they're thrown in the towel or like these kids are, you know, putting every single thing they have. This is the number one thing they do. This is their identity. This is what they're 
career is, um, to be kind of just thrown in the mud that they're lazy didn't, didn't sit well with us. So th- that was one take, um, that, that I had going into this, just wanted the level set on that point before we go and assess the coaches. There's a reason we're assessing the coaches. Um, the coaches are making millions of dollars a year. They're full-time employees of the university. They're not students. And I get we're in an NIL age and are they amateur? Are they professional? I don't care. They're 19, 20 year old kids. So if you're out there attacking our players and are also calling yourself a Notre Dame football fan, stop it. Like stop it right now. Get your act together and grow up and be an adult. Um, I'll get off my box. Uh, that, that's my speech. That's my rant, but I wanted to get that off my chest. I've, I've been thinking about it all week. Um, if you're a fan of the Notre Dame football program, you got an issue, take it up with the coaches, the administration, whatever, but let's stay positive about 18, 19, 20 year old kids. Agree a hundred percent with all that. It's, it's just such a lazy take and that's just the uh, minimum of lazy. it. N- n- it's nice a part. very, yeah, exactly. They're not, the players are not the ones who are being lazy. It's this, these podcasts, these fans coming in with these lazy takes. They're the ones who are being lazy. They're not, they're, they're trying to find a very simple explanation for what's going on. And it just doesn't add up for me. If you look at this program, really since Freeman has taken over, we haven't really had any program issues that I can identify since, since that, since that happened. Typically, if you have lazy players, that seems to align with a big cultural problem that you have with the program. By all accounts, the team, even though we haven't started out very well, by all accounts, the team has a very strong culture. And when you have a bad culture, on the other hand, where you have this laziness, typically it's accompanied by things like players struggling with academics. You'll have more players ruled ineligible for not keeping their grades up. You'll tend to have players getting in trouble with the law or getting in trouble for team conduct violations, things like that. We have really not had any of that at at all since Freeman took over. So it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. I get fans are frustrated, but just calling out the players for not putting the work in, that's just simply doesn't align with anything else that we've been seeing. I get it. It's an easy take. If you're a fan of the program and you're really frustrated, you probably wish, oh, hey, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if we could just flip a switch? If the players could just flip a button and try a little bit harder and, and they'll play better. That would obviously be a much easier solution to remedy what we've seen thus far in the season, but it just doesn't line up. And Brett, you alluded to it. I think it, the blame lines up more with really the coaches and how, how they've been evaluating certain position groups, how they've been calling certain, certain games, how they've been putting players in positions to succeed or not succeed. Now, another point we want to touch on, going back to the old coach, Brian Kelly, Bayou Brian, is that this is a, this is another take that I think fans are kind of latching onto. And I think it's a take that fans latch onto because they want to feel better. It's just like a way to blame someone. They're using him as a scapegoat, essentially. I keep saying that he left the cupboard bare. The program's in a crappy place with huge holes on the roster, set to fail. Of course, there are some holes on the roster, wide receiver in particular. There's not a lot of depth there. But any program short of Alabama, Georgia, any program is going to have some holes. We're going to have some points of weakness. But you have Even to look Georgia at the bigger picture. Georgia last year, by the way, Georgia fans last year were furious that they didn't have a good quarterback. And they still won a national championship with a walk-on quarterback. So even yeah. Georgia had holes in, uh, in their championship roster. 
Exactly. So I think focusing on one position group and saying he left the cupboard bare, it's really just cherry picking one specific point. If you look at the roster as a whole, this is as good as it's been since I've been a fan. We're, if you look at the talent composite for 24-7, we're ranked 10th. That's the highest that we've been. We were one spot out of the college football playoff a year ago. If Auburn didn't choke their lead against Alabama, we would have been in the playoff. In many ways, you could argue that we should have been in the playoff short of Auburn just completely imploding. No major transfer exodus. Marcus Freeman also held the recruiting class together. So as far as stability goes, as far as talent goes, the program really coming into the season was in about as healthy a place as possible. Swarbrick even called out that the program was in such a good spot that it allowed him to hire a younger coach without prior head coach experience. If you didn't have all these aspects, you wouldn't be able to even consider someone like Freeman being the head coach. So if you're one of those people going into this season that was saying, I'm really high on Marcus Freeman, I think he gives us a lot of upside, and yeah, he's inexperienced, but guess what? The Notre Dame program is in a great place. You can't now completely flip your opinion and say, oh, Kelly, we're playing back. Kelly left the cupboard bare. Those two things just completely go against each other. They, You can't say one and then say the other. They can't both be true, essentially. So that's another take. Again, I get fans are frustrated. I think that's where it's all stemming from. But we really need to take a step back and, and not just blame people to blame people. We need to try to get to the root of the problem. So, and again, mentioned this a couple minutes ago when I was talking, but this overall, this is more on the current staff than anything. You can't blame it on your ex. You gotta, you gotta, as I said, dive in to the current situation and see what that root problem is. So let's dive in and do that. So starting with Freeman and then we're going to get to Reese. Um, I think we've kind of got one positive on Freeman and, and two negatives and, and I'll maybe start with the first positive and then Mike, you, you can dive in on, on maybe the more negative constructive feedback side. Um, he's a defensive minded coach. He, you know, a lot of times when you hire a coach, you're bringing someone in to kind of run one side of the ball and then you got to trust everyone else to run the other side of the ball, but you kind of know what you're getting. We, we brought him in as a defensive coach. That's his background. And the defense is really solid. We, we've said it. They're 18th in SP plus. Um, you know, we, we think they're doing a lot of things really, really well. And that's despite the offense really putting the defense in, in just horrible positions with three and outs, turnovers on, in our own side of the field. Um, just not being able to, you know, really control any time management or, or game clock, um, and, and keeping chains moving that, that just put the defense in a really bad space. There's things to improve on for sure. Our, our defense is not perfect. We, we've talked about havoc, um, being an area where, where we would expect more havoc generated by Notre Dame's defense that finally showed up in the Cal game. Is that sustainable going forward? So th- there's definitely things to work on, but I think first and foremost, if, if Freeman was brought in to be, a top-notch recruiter, energized program, coach a really good defense, and then you got Tom Reese on the other side of the ball. Well, Freeman's holding up his end of the bargain on defense. And so I don't want to lose sight of that, that if Freeman was kind of elevated largely to make sure we kept having a top-notch defense, so far this year we do. Is it elevated to top 10 like we were maybe thinking it could? No, but it's still right in that top 20 range where we've been. And that, that's a really good place to, to be. So just starting on overall assessment, on 50% of the ball, he's doing a really good job. Agree 100%. And as you said, like that's his side of the ball that he has a lot of experience with. So it shows that he's keeping that side. The unit is essentially 
what we thought they would be. Maybe the defensive line got off to a little bit of a slow start, but they finally, as we've said multiple times in this podcast, they finally showed that potential that we've been waiting on. So I think they still could be a a top 10 unit when it's all said and done. And that's a great place to build from. Now, it's always great to start with the positives, but we have to move to the negatives if we're going to take a comprehensive view here. And Brent and I are both aligned on this point. We've talked about this at length off the air, but Overall, and, and I hinted at this in the last episode too. So far, after the slow start, we're, we're not exactly encouraged by the response that we've gotten from the coaching staff so far. So what exactly do we mean by that? So I think Freeman, politically, I think he's very savvy. I think he knows the types of things that could resonate with the Notre Dame fan base. I think he's trying to show that he understands the university. But at the end of the day, what really matters is wins and losses. Brian Kelly... A lot of people thought he was an a-hole. He didn't really <laughs> embrace the program the way that a lot of fans would have liked. But he did get a lot of wins, and ultimately that's that's what the most important aspect is. Freeman, there's there's been a certain component of his tenure thus far where there have been a lot of these little items that probably don't really matter much individually. But when you add them up, it kind of gives off the impression that maybe there's not as much focus on just winning the games first and foremost. And then maybe you can, if you have the luxury of time afterwards, you can move on to some of these other things. So what are these other things that I'm talking about? So it's things like switching the pregame routine to going to mass or having Lou Holtz more in the program or just generally have more alums around or the green jerseys, all these things. These are all, in my opinion, nice to haves. If the team is winning and you have these, that's great. But I, I wouldn't want any emphasis or... Or, or time that could be spent elsewhere being spent on, on these things when you could, you could be using that effort towards figuring out how to shore up certain aspects of the team. So I think, and again, these things may not matter at all. There could be very little time that's being spent on it, but I think the big thing is optically. It just, again, looks like a lack of focus on football. And I think at a time like this, optics are important. It can kind of generate an unnecessary sense of panic or an unnecessary sense that maybe Freeman doesn't know what he's doing. And, I think it makes it a little less likely that you can kind of get that morale boost or get people to buy in that you're able to actually turn things around. So I think, uh, that, that, that's one aspect that we've been a little, a little bit concerned about. And I think another specific aspect that we weren't particularly enthused about either was just Freeman's response that we need to look at everything. I talked about this last week, but this is a bit of a subjective take, and maybe this is happening behind the scenes, but we wish that it was there was more of a focused approach. When you say you need to look at everything, that kind of implies that you don't really have any idea what's going on. You just need to look at everything, and maybe you can figure it out. Whereas if you came in and you said, hey, these are the three problems we need to fix. We know what they are, and we have potential solutions to them. To me, that gives a lot more confidence that we're going to be able to figure it out. So Freeman came out and said, hey, we spent the whole week figuring out how we can pressure the QB. That's an area that we haven't been doing as well in. Or on offense, we spent the entire week focused on how we can create running lanes better or how we can get the ball in Lindsey and Tyree's hands. Maybe these aren't, these aren't, maybe these aren't the right examples, but they're just kind of meant to give an idea of the, the type of uh, responses that we would have liked. So I think if, if Freeman was giving some more specifics, if he was prioritizing on a few things, I, I personally would feel a little bit better about the ability to turn it around. I think just kind of the scattershot approach makes me a little nervous. It raises a few red flags that, you know, maybe he's, we don't know if he's in over his head yet, but I think comments like that make me a little bit more nervous than I would be otherwise. I, I agree. And, and the, if you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, the benefit of the doubt is like, look, what you say to the media isn't necessarily 
what he's thinking behind the scenes. And if he does have some, you know, secret, like he knows what it is, he, he doesn't want to divulge state secrets. And generally the program's been less open to the media than it was under the Kelly regime. So he might just be keeping his cards held close to his chest. But I, I don't know about that. Like he looked pretty, uh, like he, again, he's the emotional upbeat coach. If you're going to be the emotional upbeat coach, you got to keep that going in good times and bad. And on the sidelines in the first half when we had like four straight three and outs, I mean, he was throwing his hands up. He was rolling his eyes. And, and I am totally okay if a coach wants to like roll their eyes. I think that's way better than berating a program getting or a player getting purple in the face or yelling, do your effing job like Reese does. I just don't think yelling is ever a good motivator in a professional work setting, which for a coach, this is your profession. Um, but. It felt like pretty candid when Freeman was saying, we need to look at everything because I don't know. Like, it's not one thing. And, like, that's just not true. Like, he could have started off by saying, look, we need our defense to keep doing what we're doing. There's some tweaks we needed to do there, but our defense is solid. They're doing great work. And on the offensive side of the ball, I got to take ownership of figuring that out with Reese. Like, I got to step in and and help come up with an answer because right now we don't have it. And I get it. You don't want to, you know, call out the offense versus the defense, whatever. The offense is stunk. Like, let's just get that out there. The offense is not meeting expectations, and the defense is. And so, again, maybe he's just saying a we-need-to-look-at-everything approach to the media to just, like, avoid the wrong message coming across. And then that's great PR work, and that would make me really, really happy. But I'm worried that's actually his approach right now, and he's not focusing in on what we're maybe about to get to on, on Reese in a second. The last thing, so that that's negative number one, is just like, is he prioritizing the two or three things we need to fix, or is he focused on too many things? The second thing is, and, and this is related, he's got to become a CEO coach. And so we, we talked a lot about in the offseason, and, and the entire media did, how Brian Kelly was his CEO coach, he was hired by Swarbrick to be a CEO coach to come in and fix a program, rebuild it after Charlie Weiss. And Freeman didn't have all those CEO qualities, and he maybe didn't need all of them, at least right away in his career, because of other qualities he brought, like being a recruiter and also because the program, you know, is in, in such a better place. Well, there's a real impact to having a head coach making the other assistant coaches better. And Brian Kelly had a really good track record of that. So we actually have fun looking at data. It's, it's what we do here on the show. So Brian Kelly had five coordinators leave to become head coaches. Um, Charlie Molnar to UMass, Bob Diaco to UConn, Chuck Martin to Miami, Ohio, Mike Sanford to Western Kentucky, Clark Lee to Vandy. Each one of those coaches, if you look at where the program was that they took over to what the program was by the time they left, um, Chuck Martin is the only one that's improved it. So Chuck Martin took, uh, Miami of Ohio from being about the 100 to 110th SP plus team in the five years before he took over to being around 95th. So he slightly improved it, but Bob Diaco took over a bad UConn program and made it worse. Charlie Molnar, um, he actually took over UMass when it became an FBS program. So there was no pre data. But um, went two and twenty-two at, at UMass, and they finished dead last in the SP Plus in both years. So couldn't possibly do worse. Um, Mike Sanford took over a great Western Kentucky program. If if you remember, um, that was the Jeff Brom 
era at Western Kentucky, they actually got into the top 20 of SP plus and they averaged, uh, outside the top 100 under Sanford. So he just torched that program and Clark Lee, probably too early to tell, but his first year at Vanderbilt, uh, Vanderbilt's SP plus was 122. So that, that's also pretty bottom barrel. I'm a huge Clark Lee fan. I, I hope he does well. What that goes to show though is Kelly had five really great assistants right there. Like we, we love all of those coordinators that they, they all coached up great sides of the football at Notre Dame and couldn't do it on their own without Brian Kelly. Like Brian Kelly made them better. Brian Kelly got into game planning with them, got into scheming with them, got into in-game adjustments with them and made those coaches better versions than they could on their own. Cause clearly on their own, they, they couldn't run a successful program. And so this isn't to sit here and praise Brian Kelly or wish he was back or anything like that. That's not any of it, but it's to acknowledge that there's real value in that CEO quality of a coach. And a lot of that is in making your assistant coaches better versions of themselves, helping them scheme, helping them play call, helping them with in-game adjustments. And right now, I think Marcus Freeman's probably doing that with Al Golden on the defensive side of the football. He's got to take ownership of the offensive side of the football. He's the head coach. I don't care if he doesn't have an offensive background. Marcus Freeman is the head coach of the University of Notre Dame's football team. And if the offense is not on track, Marcus Freeman needs to figure out a solution to help it get on track. And I'm just not seeing that right now. Like there was even a quote in this game where um, he like admitted to stepping in on play calling about wondering why we were doing something. And then Reese was like, this is why. And Freeman's like, oh, I guess that makes sense. And then Reese did it and it worked. It was some successful play in the Cal game. And I was sitting there thinking like, that's your input as the head coach is like coming up with an idea that the offensive coordinator like quickly refutes. And you're like, Oh yeah, bad idea. My, my bad. I'll, I'll be quiet on the headset. That's not a good look for Marcus Freeman. If that's the input he's providing on the offensive side of the football. Yeah, I agree. So I think Freeman has conceded that he doesn't know the offensive side of the ball as well. Like in the off season, he was saying that was an area where, he was trying to get up to speed. He was trying to learn a lot. But I don't know. I just think with with Reese, it seems like this point of Kelly being able to bring out the best in his coordinators, being able to create a great partnership that's really effective, but then once they go their separate ways, the coordinators don't do as well. It seems like that could potentially be happening here with Reese. And that's not to say that Reese isn't – he's still very young. He's still very inexperienced, but – if you focus on the offensive side of the ball right now, it's, it's being led by Tommy Reese and there are really no, there are really no checks. He's not really answering to anyone. Technically he's answering to Freeman, but your anecdote that you gave where when Freeman essentially challenged him on something, he was very quickly refuted. That, that essentially to me suggests that Tommy Reese is running the show completely on his own. And for someone who is certainly smart from an X's and O's standpoint, but still very young and inexperienced, it, it is a nice element to have that more experienced coach who can kind of dive in and challenge you on certain things. And I don't think, I don't know. It's, it, to me, it's not clear that Tommy Reese is getting that right now. Um, that's something certainly that Kelly, that, you know, Kelly would give to him when, when they were, when they were together. And I think that potentially was a, a partnership that, that worked really well. So again, the one area for concern with me there is, yeah, I agree. Freeman should dive in more, but I, my concern is that is he knowledgeable enough about that side of the ball to really actually make that much of an impact? 
Um, you'd think maybe some of his expertise on the defensive side of the ball could help there, but th- that's an area uh, that I'm not sure about as much. Yeah, I mean, and maybe this is even where, you know, it might take time. We, we know we hired a really young coach who only has experience on one side of the ball. So it's not like I expected Freeman to be the offensive play caller, right? But, and I just went and found it, the exact quote was, after describing this scenario, and it was the 36-yard pass to estimate, so it was our best offensive play of the day, Freeman said, that's why I need to shut up and let Tom do his job. I, I Like, I get it that Freeman's not going to be heavily involved in the offense. That quote, to me, is not a good thing. Like, that's not a good thing that our head coach is staring at a struggling offense saying, I need to shut up and stay out of the way um, when things clearly haven't done well. Uh, that's just like a really yellow to red flag to me. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I think Tommy, look, I think he has potential. But as I mentioned, he's inexperienced. We often hear this is a, a common theme that you hear from the Notre Dame beat writers from the media. And they always talk about how all these NFL coaches praise Tommy Reese, particularly in the coaching circles. So the most notable is Sean McVay. And frankly, if I, you'd be hard pressed to find a person who would be better to receive uh, praise from than Sean McVay, maybe Belichick. But uh, I would say the, the seal of approval from Sean McVay at times has gotten people NFL coaching jobs. So that, that is, that certainly is notable, but it's also worth pointing out that Sean McVay and Tommy Reese have never actually been on the same staff together. They, he's never actually, Sean McVay has never actually seen Tommy Reese coach uh, in person or for any prolonged period of time. I'm sure he sees certain plays on film when he's evaluating prospects that went to Notre Dame and he may see some creative plays that, that kind of, uh, grab his interest. But beyond that, there hasn't been any ext- extended a period here where they've really gotten a feel for each other. So I think that points over, that point is overstated a little bit here. Now, I think shifting back a year ago, the two biggest targets for Notre Dame fans that we would often focus on really is, is scapegoats, are Dell Alexander and Jeff Quinn. We're not going to dive into some, all the specifics on it. Brent and I generally thought Quinn got a little bit too much blame. We thought it was a little overstated. Dell Alexander, that's that's totally fair. If you just look at the position that our, our wide receiver room has been left in, I think that speaks for itself. But essentially because of that, Tommy Reese was left off the hook as a young offensive coordinator. Not totally on him. These are Kelly's hires. He's just calling plays. He's the QB guy. He's not really responsible for these position groups. But at the end of the day, he is the offensive coordinator. So the, if there are these offensive line and wide receiver issues, he he's the one who's, uh, again, responsible for all this. And that's eight of the 11 positions under him that are not doing well. I think he probably should get a little bit of blame. Sure, again, there's some caveats. Kelly's hires. He's a young coordinator. But it, these, these, these positions directly fall under his job role. So I don't think you can totally totally, uh, you know, let him off the hook for that. But um, making making co- co- coaching changes is part of it. And so now we're seeing that a little bit more. Tommy Reese has had his hand with with uh, without Kelly getting involved. He's had his hand behind uh, hires a little bit more this year. So he's been able to get his guys in. So now I think there's, there's really no excuse that you can point to. It's all completely his responsibility. And so if, if you don't see any improvement, if you see certain position groups struggle, there's no, there's no reason not to, not to lay the blame at, at, at Reese's feet. Yeah. And so that, that moves into, we'll call it the Tom Reese, um, evaluation 
falls into two buckets. And the one I want to spend the most time on is the first one, but play calling and then personnel evaluation. But, but let, let's start with play calling. So there are things that this offense has done really, really well this year. And I know that's hard to believe. If you're a listener and you want to mute and turn it off from here, totally, totally okay with that opinion. But there are things we actually do well. And there are some things we really, really don't do well. And we keep trying to do both of them. So what do I mean by that? Running the ball up the middle. Uh, pro football focus grade uh, 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 measures out directions of runs. When we run up the middle between the guards, we are averaging two yards per carry. When we, when we run the ball outside the guards, we average about four and a half to five yards per carry. We roughly run it a third to the left, a third to the middle, and a third to the right. I get it. It's balanced. But up the middle is not working. <clears throat> it's abysmally failing. And I'm not even saying four and a half or five yards is great, right? Like Josh Adams had seasons where he'd rush for seven, eight, nine yards per carry. So I can get into not being happy with four and a half or five yards per carry. But that's a hell of a lot better than what we're doing right now. And so the fact that we just keep pounding it up the middle makes no sense to me. None whatsoever. The second thing is, um, and I think these stats largely held, including the Cal game, but in the first two weeks of the year, we had um, a 80% completion rate on play action and 100% completion rate on screens. They literally were working 80 to 100% of the time. Please keep doing them. We called two screens against Ohio State, four against Marshall, <clears throat> we only had play action five times against Ohio State. That did tick up a lot against Marshall to 10. But, like, keep doing it until it doesn't work. Like, just keep doing play action. And and it's not because the run game has been a big threat. It's not because you're trying to, like, completely fool the defense and throw some deep shot. It's just play action holds someone accountable. It slows down the blitzer a half step. It slows down... It, you know, makes that linebacker who's guarding Mike Mayer just think, you know, one half step towards the run game. If you get a linebacker going one half step the wrong way against Mike Mayer, Mike Mayer is open, right? So just keep doing play action. Keep doing screens. For the love of God, can we bring back the bubble screens and the jet sweeps? Like, misdirection is working. Um Period, full stop. So I put misdirection being play action, jet sweeps, bubble screens, all, like all screens, um, any play with motion. When we are doing that, this offense is pretty fluid. And we'll do it for three, four plays in a row, and then we'll run the ball up the middle for two yards. And then on second and eight, we'll do a traditional drop back, five-second drop route, um, and you know try to get some long-developing route tree to work, and our receivers can't get separation. It's an incomplete pass, and now it's third and eight. And, like, we just had two first downs doing misdirection. Like, just stop the stuff that's not working and just do what's working. Like, the Los Angeles Rams and the Kansas City Chiefs, the two best, and I'll throw the Packers in there, the, the probably the three best offenses in the NFL, they just do misdirection. They do, like, nothing else. Like, if it's not misdirection, it's not a part of the offense. And that's especially true for the Rams and the Chiefs. Um Tom Reese needs to figure that out. He needs to figure out that this, like, smash the ball up the middle of the defense or these, like, drop back, long developing route passes, none of them are being successful. Like, none of them. Stop them and, and just, like, go back to the data and realize that when you run it to the outside, left or right, 
And when you run misdirection, either in the passing game or the running game, you're having a lot of success. Like, just do what's working. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think with the play action, one point on that is there's this myth that you always hear from just I mean, really, you just hear it all the time. Uh, and, and that's that you need to establish the run in order to make play action effective. But really, it, it's really kind of the opposite. Like nowadays, play action essentially helps you set up the run in many ways. And I think there's this part of this myth is that like the play action will not be effective unless you've just committed to the run. Um, otherwise, the teams are just not going to bite. But that's not that's not really what the data shows. The data shows that play action is still effective. The defenders are still going to hesitate a little bit. They maybe it slows them down a little bit. Of course, if you have a very strong running game, maybe that hesitation lasts a little bit longer. Maybe they maybe they maybe they move one direction a little bit more than they would otherwise. But you don't necessarily need to just commit play after play to the running game in order for these play action uh, plays to, to be effective. So I think. I think, you know, certainly I think we, we can continue to improve on the run side of the ball, but that doesn't mean, even if, if that part of, if that part of the offense isn't doing too well, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing play action. It can still be really effective, particularly if we have better athletes on the field, which we will in most of our games, with the exception of Clemson and Ohio State. So, um, that's, that's one point on the play calling. Now, moving to the other aspect of our assessment of Reese, Brett covered the play calling. And the next big point is player usage. And so this is an area where we think there's been some some poor decisions made. So one, here's a specific example, Braden Lindsay. At this point, we, we know exactly who he is after four years. Lights out speed, not the best route runner, not going to win a whole lot of contested catches, but just a really good athlete who's extremely fast. Now on that contested catch point, these are 50-50 balls. Lindsay, his percentage in these situations is 20%. So 20% of the time he actually catches this or catches these. And that's for this year and for his career. It's an area where he's apparently tried to get better in, but there hasn't really been any market improvement. It really, at this point, I think it's fair to say this is, this is who he is. He's not going to be able to just start pulling in passes over corners on the regular. Comparing him to some other Notre Dame receivers, Claypool, much higher. 58% on the 50-50 balls. And then Mike Mayer is about 60%, just for comparison's sake. So what we really need to do is just stop having him run routes that put him in bad positions. We can't, we know he's not going to get these contested uh, catches on the regular. So what's the point of, of, of throwing him in the ball in those situations or setting up plays to put him in that situation? We should get him in bubble screens, jet sweeps, quick slant routes, and then deep balls where he can outrun people. That aligns with his skill set. That's where he's going to be particularly effective. But right now, we're using him more than more than he should in positions where he has to play like Kevin Austin or Chase Claypool or Miles Boykin, and that's just not who he is. It'd be great if he had that in his skill set, but it's not. We just need to accept who he is and call plays for him that are actually going to put him in a put him in a position to succeed. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's so many examples that that fall into this bucket with Reese too. I mean, Tyree's another one. Chris Tyree is arguably our most dynamic skill player. Um, maybe our best offensive player. I, I I don't know, but he he's been really good with the ball in his hands this year, and he was third behind Diggs, who clearly does not look 100% healthy from offseason shoulder, and also behind Audrey Estime, who's really in his first year getting any meaningful action. and And I feel great about Diggs and Estime's future, but like, I don't know how you went through an entire offseason getting to watch Tyree Diggs and Estime in 40-some practices, and then in these three games, the rest of us see that Tyree is just clearly doing better than the other two 
He's grading out better. His ability to pick up the blitz, his ability to be effective in the pass game. Like he's just a better all around back, par- partially because he's older and more experienced, but also like he was a legit, you know, top 60 recruit and he's finally healthy. Like I don't know how Reese doesn't evaluate that in the off season. And then this kind of goes back to play calling, but you also know who Chris Tyree is and he's not the guy to run up the middle. So stop running Chris Tyree up the middle. Like I, I don't know what we're doing. And we ran into this last year, like on the offensive line, I get Blake Fisher went down early, but then we had Michael Carmody and that didn't work out. So we replaced him with Joel Alt. Z Krell didn't work out. So we replaced him with Andrew Christoffich. We have eight top 200 recruits on the offensive line. Why did it take Tom Reese last year four games to figure out who the best five were? Um, why did it take him four games last year to figure out that Jack Cohn is a statue and is not a mobile quarterback and cannot avoid the pass rush? So if you have him hold the ball for a long period of time, he will get sacked. So then in game five, we hit the bye week and they're like, oh, we watched film and we realized that we would be really good if we go to the quick passing game. <clears throat> and so I remember it was something like we went from like an average depth of target from like 11 yards to seven yards. Like we basically just exclusively went to short, quick passing throws. Why did that take five weeks? Like, why is it taking us a loss to Marshall to figure out that, oh, wow, Chris Tyree's really good if you give him the ball in space. Why are we still not using Braden Lindsay, arguably going into this year, the guy who's supposed to be our number one receiver? Why are we still not finding ways to get him the football? Um, like we're, we're three weeks into the season and, and we're still figuring this out. We're still kind of sort of sitting here saying, I don't know if Zeke Corral's the guy, right? Like uh, Zeke Corral's a great recruit. He's been an on and off starter for three years. I, I really hope he turns it around and, you know, comes out guns blazing and proves everyone wrong. But like you got Rocco Spindler and Andrew Kristofic and like, you know, Carmody and, and like there are other legit, you know, four star solid blue chip guys on our two deep on the offensive line. And I just don't know if we have the best five on the field right now. And so th- there's just this like personnel evaluation of both like, how is it taking you an entire offseason? And then you still don't figure this out. It takes you four games, five games, six games. Um, it, it just, it's a little disconcerting to me that every year it's like we start the season and we don't know what our identity is like you I just don't buy that like you got to be able to evaluate the guys in the offseason and come up with the scheme and the plan and, and evaluate their skills and at least be remotely close going into the season it just feels like every year with Reese September's like the experiment and then by October we figured out it's like September can't be an experiment and we're finding that out right now the hard way yeah, it's a big issue. Um, clearly, going into the start of this season, Reese assumed that our offensive line was going to be one of the best units on the entire team. And then after the first two games, they were one of the weakest. So going back to our point on evaluation, I'm just wondering over the summer what the heck he was seeing that made them think that they would be so effective. They couldn't even be effective against Marshall. Um, so I, I, I don't know what he's seeing. Again, tying it back to some of our other points, maybe if you had a more experienced coach around him who could essentially hold him accountable a little bit more, question him. Again, we were also having these issues last year under Kelly too. So it's not like that would automatically be a fix, but maybe it makes it a little bit more likely. It is frustrating though, that 
his vision for the team going into the season seems to just be very far off. I guess moving forward, you could think of that. The silver lining would be, okay, he figures it out, and then our offense is going to get better. But it's really frustrating. For this season, we essentially threw – I don't think we were going to beat Ohio State anyway – but it's really frustrating that we essentially just threw a game like Marshall into the wood chipper. It was essentially like a sacrifice to learn a hard lesson about our offensive line. And and also just more generally on the offense, what our strengths and weaknesses are. What I really would like to see, it would be great if it, you know, if we moved to next year and we know what our identity is, we're playing to our strengths, we're not feeling it out for the first four or five games, and we come out of the gate strong. It's just we haven't seen that yet. And I think more broadly, that just points to, again, like you said, a personnel evaluation issue. Maybe we get better at it. I mean, to his credit, he's not stubborn. And if something's clearly not working, it seems like he does adapt, maybe not as quickly as we would like. But it uh, it shows that there's a bit of a disconnect at times. And again, I don't know what the fix here is. Maybe it's you have someone who's more, maybe Freeman is able to develop on the offensive side of the ball a bit more to where he can chime in a little bit more and maybe call out some red flags if Tommy Reese has a certain vision for what the offense is and Freeman doesn't necessarily agree, he can challenge him on it. And then maybe they don't automatically assume that the offensive line is going to be a great unit out of the gate. Um, yeah, but I would it's say it's almost like Freeman's so focused on what's not working. I wish like, and again, maybe this is happening, but it just doesn't feel like it is. We do know what's working. Like running to the outside is working. Screens are working. Play action is working. Play action is working, even though we don't have a run game that's working. Play action is working. Um, misdirection is working. And so, you know, I think that, by the way, should also give Notre Dame fans some optimism. If, if you want to take the, you know, optimistic glass half full, like how do we go win eight games still this year? It's that there are real parts of this offense that have potential to successfully move the chains, get the ball to some really talented athletes that are going to be better than the defenses they're going up against. And so th- there is hope for sure. Like like you can see it, that there were definitely glimmers of it against a good Cal defense. They, they got to figure it out now. Um, and, and they need to do so quickly because we're about to see some really tough opponents coming up, North Carolina being one of them. Bigger picture though, Mike, like going back to what you're saying. Next year, 2023, we, we can't take five games. Like we, we've got Ohio State as the third or fourth game of the season. Like, like we can't be sitting here experimenting in September. Um, having a new starting quarterback is not an excuse. Like having turn, like that, that's college football. Like you, you get the guys for four years. There's always going to be turnover. And so I, I just think this personnel evaluation is one of the more troubling signs now that, that has really plagued us two years in a row. Yeah, and and we also don't even know for sure if we're going to figure it out this year. I mean, there there are some signs in the data that we look in. There are reasons to believe that we can. Like from the Cal game, we saw that maybe the offensive line could kind of figure it out a little bit. But again, just one game, and not everyone on the offensive line played well. Blake Fisher played pretty poorly. So again, we're, we're being a little bit optimistic that we're going to figure it out this season. But yeah, I, I think we're in agreement here that it's more of a long-term trend that's concerning. You can't just... College football games, we said this at the beginning, it's so hard to win and it's so hard to do it consistently that you can't just take a mulligan for the first five games of the year. You got to be ready to go out the gates. It's just like you're not going to be able to consistently make the playoff, consistently compete for a championship. I mean, heck, for this year, I mean, that stuff's like not, that's completely off the table. Heck, if you want to even just consistently win nine games, you can't just, you can't just sacrifice the first six, five, six games of the year to just feel out what your strengths and weaknesses are on the team. 
For sure. So with that um, quick recap of the Freeman-Reese evaluation, you know, Freeman, I think we want to see him getting more focused um, in really what's the two to three things to work on, not maybe look at the kit, you know, throw out the kitchen sink. And with Reese, it's look, the play calling, like there's things that are working. So if, you know, our evaluation of Reese in the next few weeks is going to be, are we doing 10 to 15 play actions a game? Are we doing five or more screens? Are we seeing jet sweeps and motion looks? Um, and then personnel evaluation, like, are we getting the ball in the hands of Braden Lindsay? Are we getting the ball in the hands of Chris Tyree? And longer term, you know, I think we got to readdress this question a year from now, but with that, we'll leave it. We think there's starting to feel like Cal was a movement in the right direction, obviously getting in the win column and it's on to Carolina. So Gyrish beat Tar Heels. Gyrish beat Tar Heels.